Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. When I want to research something new, I usually just send an email to the library. But when Sabina Highland was waiting for her go-ahead on a project, she needed something bigger. A sign. A rare vicuña appeared on the Peruvian mountainside, which signaled to the elders of San Juan de Collada that she was approved, perhaps even chosen, to study one of their most precious and sacred objects, kibus. Sabina is an anthropologist, someone who tries to understand the full breadth of human experience. She's spent her life researching the cultures of the Andes, the way that Christianity interacted with the spiritual landscape, and deciphering what has been described as the new Rosetta Stone, kipus, strings with knots that contain meaning that nobody could decipher until now. It was such a delight to sit down and chat with Sabina about kipus, culture, contentedness, and how our world is interwoven with meaning. It was so fun to hear her stories of adventure, miraculous signs, horse riding up rock faces, touching strings that embody time itself. I loved having this conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy listening in. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show today, Sabina. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I wanted to begin today um, by talking a bit about who you are and what you do. You are an anthropologist, which on the one hand, um, in my brain, I think, well, that's just the study of, uh, what is it the study of? I'll let you say that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. What is anthropology? It's kind of a strange sounding word. Um, It's sometimes been referred to as making the world safe for human differences. Mm. Um, Anthropologists try to understand the diversity of the world Mm. and how people, even though we're all, of course, united, how we differ in terms of our culture. Mm. And a lot of anthropologists believe that if we have theories about, say, kinship or families or the environment or whatever, that are based only on the viewpoint of people from, say, Western Europe or the United States, that will lose, actually, perspectives from Mm. radically different peoples, and so we're impoverished in that way. So, Mm. yeah, so anthropology is about trying to understand kind of the whole breadth of the human experience. Mm. That's beautiful. And kind of trying to add more perspectives that were not so monomaniacal, seeing through only one lens onto the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what I've always loved about what you've shared with me about your research is you seem to love doing it. Um, And uh, so what kind of drew you to doing what you do and researching what you research? Yeah, um, I'm very fortunate to get to do the things that I really love. Although I think my family is kind of sick of hearing me talk about it all the time. Well, good. You could talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, When I was a kid growing up, my father was a professor at Cornell. Mm -hmm. And when I was nine, we went to live in the Philippines for a year. He studied agriculture in developing nations. And then when I was in high school, we lived in Peru for a year. And I just fell in love with places outside of the United States. I thought that... Peru and Peruvians had perspectives that I wasn't used to in the little town in upstate New York, Ithaca, 
where I grew up. And so I've had the good fortune to be able to keep going back. That's wonderful. And tell us a bit about your specific research. You are, dare I say, famous for having made a discovery. I think that's the coolest thing. As, a, as somebody studying theology, you rarely get to say, I've made a discovery definitively that nobody else has made. But you've gotten to do that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the peoples of the Andes mm -hmm. have a way of communicating their ideas and recording their ideas using chords and strings. Mm -hmm. It's most, these, are, these chords and strings are known as quipus. Mm -hmm. And the quipus associated with the Inca Empire are the most famous. Now, the Inca Empire lasted from about 1400 to 1532. Mm -hmm. And then in 1532, the Spanish arrived and, and took over. And so these objects, quipus, are associated with the Incas, but they actually have a thousand-year history. Mm -hmm. They're the oldest type of inscription of any Native American society ever. Mm -hmm. The earliest ones date to around 800 AD. And in some cases, so what I've been able to do is I've been able to find communities where the use of this these strange knotted strings has lasted into the mid-20th century. For a long time, everybody thought, oh, well, once the Spanish arrived in the 16th century, that was it. Alphabetic writing replaced quipus. But, um, like I said, as myself and a, and a few other anthropologists have found, we found communities. Um, a number of years ago, I was invited by villagers in the, in the community of Collada, mm -hmm. it's called San Juan de Collada, very remote village mm -hmm. in the Peruvian Andes. And they invited me to study the two quipus that they had in their community chest. Now these were hidden. Um, not only did most villagers for a long time not know about them, but they were kept in a secret chest that was in a secret underground chamber under the church, which was locked most of the time. So they're very secret. <laughs> and they were only shown to the adult men when the men accepted a major task. <laughs> um, but a few years before I was invited, word got out. It was known in the village generally that these existed. And I was invited. The village council actually um, had to agree. <laughs> and once... Um, they agreed to let outsiders see this for the first time ever. Um, a type of uh, camelid called a wild vicuña appeared in the mountainside, which was taken as a sign that the mountain gods approved of allowing us to see this, which is kind of incredible. And it gives you an idea of like how these this type of writing is tied mm. to the natural world around them in a way that we don't think of writing as being. Mm. So I went there with my husband, Bill, and in the village, as we began studying these quipus, we realized that they're actually very different than most other quipus. Now, when the Spanish arrived in Peru, they explained that there were two kinds of quipus, one for numbers and records, and another kind for narratives, mm -hmm. poetry, letters. Well, most of the quipus that exist have numbers in them, and so we figure there are counting quipus. But these quipus in Collada had no numbers. They had an incredible array of colors, and mm -hmm. it turns out they were made from uh, six different um, animals, the mm -hmm. fibers of six different animals, llamas, vicuñas, deer, alpacas, guanacos, and a little rodent called a bizcacha. Mm -hmm. okay? And so anyway, I was able to ascertain that they were phonetic, mm 
that they were actually narrative letters written in the 18th century and I was able to decipher two of the chords on um, the two words on them and so that's been really exciting and that really got the attention of the press that is amazing um, so what were the letters about well that's a good question what are the letters about the, there was a tradition among the people that was passed on mm -hmm. that these were letters written in support of an Inca's revolt against the Spanish <laughs> and the um, actual what I was able to decipher were two lineage names at the mm -hmm. end because you know you think of when you think of the problem of decipherment and you ask well how do people decipher anything well fortunately um, when I was a graduate student I was at Yale and I worked with people involved in deciphering the Maya glyphs and one of the keys is when you look at a text, mm -hmm. you try to figure out what kind of information will be where, right? Mm -hmm. So with Champollion, it was figuring out where that in the cartouches you would have the names of the um, emperor, of the pharaohs. Mm -hmm. Well, letters would have the name of the sender at the end. And mm -hmm. I had a pretty good idea who the senders were. I was able to decipher that phonetically on one set and that allowed us to decipher phonetically the final chords on the other one which happened mm -hmm. to be the name of one of the other major lineages wow. which we weren't expecting so there you have a decipherment and um, yeah it's really exciting it is really exciting <laughs> I mean that's really that's a discovery and um, which I know I'm harping on about this but it just seems so amazing to me to be able to see your research have truly uncovered something that that has been lost and that's been buried. Yeah, and you know, nobody ever thought, I mean, most scholars thought there was no way that quipus could be phonetic. Mm -hmm. But if they are phonetic, that means if they represent the sounds of speech, that means that we'll be able to decipher them. And in fact, I'm mm -hmm. in conversations with Google right now because mm -hmm. Google has offered their assistance um, to me to try to decipher the rest of it, which I think that we'll be able to do probably within a year. That's um, which incredible. Is exciting. It's exciting, and you know, it's funny you ask that because I just feel so lucky that, you know, when I've been in communities with their very sacred kipus that I'm seeing something sacred and secret that mm. nobody else has seen, really. It's mm. so incredible. And when, it, when you do a decipherment like this and make a discovery like this, people are like excited about the media press. Yeah. What really matters is that inner knowledge that, oh my gosh, I understand how these things work and nobody else does. You get to be privy <laughs> to this secret. Exactly. It's like a fantasy. It is like a fantasy. And I love, too, um, when you said that you were basically invited there because of this sign on the mountain. And um, I heard you, I, I read in one of your other interviews that the the people there really feel like the kipus chose you to be the one to read them. Um, and... I think that, uh, you know, you were talking about the views that we have of the world and how we can kind of become impoverished when we only see it through our, our one view of the world. I've just finished reading, which I need to give to Bill eventually. <laughs> I've just been, I just posted a review today of Piranesi by Susanna Clark, and it's through these letters from this man who lives in this house. And the thing that's the most striking about it is how there's these two characters who live in the same environment but one of them sees the whole environment as kind of charged with spiritual significance and he responds to it and he sees himself as a part of nature that's, you know, kind of in this beautiful spiritual dance. And the other one lives in the same environment but interacts with it in this very kind of 
deadened way. He can't see the spiritual significance. He can't feel the kind of push and pull of whatever thing feels obviously meaningful to this other character. Um, and I feel like in, it sounds like you get a peek into a view of the world, which is maybe not so, um, I don't know if deadened is the right word, but so one dimensional as sometimes our world can be, uh, we can't see spiritual significances as easily, um, in the West sometimes. That's a, that's a great point. I think that there are ways of living that make yourself more in tune to spiritual significances. Mm. So it's not that like people in modern America or modern Britain don't care about the spiritual or they don't know, but we live in a way that it's very difficult mm -hmm. because you need quiet. Um, in one community where I was doing research on another set of kipus, um, I was friends with a woman in the village and every single day, what she would do during most of the day was she would sit on the hillside um, uh, herding her cows mm. and her sheep. And she would read her scripture. She would read her Bible. Mm -hmm. And think of what it would be like to spend your life doing that every single day as a big part of your day. In quiet, without a sense of hurry, without a sense of like, oh my gosh, there's a million more things I need to do. And mm. the more things I have to do, the more important I am and yeah. so on. It's, it's the life itself is, is geared toward that way. One of the things that made me want to become an anthropologist way back when I was in high school was this idea that if God is truly infinite, mm -hmm. that means that it's like every culture, every people have a piece of that understanding. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in Paul's letters, he mm -hmm. talks about how God implants a knowledge of himself or herself in each people, mm -hmm. even apart from yeah. the question of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that anthropology is a way that we can uncover other pieces, other ways of knowing mm -hmm. God, just mm -hmm. for the joy of it. Yeah. And it's, it's about, I mean, yes, it's about letting other people's other voices be heard. It's mm -hmm. about kind of justice, mm -hmm. but it's also about enriching humanity yeah. with this knowledge. Yeah, I love that. Um, I was recently thinking about the desire to like encounter or, or know God and how often in scripture that's tied with like caring for, loving, and being with other people. Yeah. And there's this sense that sometimes our desire to understand God more deeply or even encounter or know or love or feel love from God is oftentimes tied with the joy of being able to love or see through somebody else's eyes. You know, and that that's um, that's so that's so beautiful. So, tell me, what is it like to, um, you know, my research is always in libraries and in libraries, or more often in my room, peering through various PDF files. So, what is it like to to travel and to really be immersed in these other communities? What are some of your your best and your best and worst adventures? Well, um, it, it's harder than it looks. I bet. Not <laughs> you know, so glamorous. I think, I think one of the, the besetting sins of all academics is that we underestimate what other disciplines do. Absolutely. I mean, everybody does it. And when you hear about anthropology, you think, well, gosh, that sounds kind of easy. Like, you go there, you ask people, you write it down, and then you, you know, like, how is that hard? It's, it's hard often. I mean, first of all, it's hard to go to a new community where nobody knows you and, and where... You know, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's hard to ask questions. It's, it's hard 
to know how to draw people out mm. to tell you things that they're not even aware that they know mm. that's harder than you think mm. it's hard when you're somebody from a society like ours that really that really values privacy mm. to live where you don't have any privacy mm. you don't have not to mention <laughs> bathrooms or toilets right <laughs> your toilet is a bucket um, <laughs> and uh but yeah, um, I mean, there have been wonderful times, um, like I said, feeling like I'm privy to secrets that nobody else knows. Um, one village where I've done work is called Rapaz, and there they have a sacred ritual precinct that's locked most of the time. Mm -hmm. And within that is a building where they have this massive kipu, mm -hmm. which they believe is, is the embodiment of time itself. And it's their link to the ancestors. They believe that basically the state of the world depends on this kipu. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who are we to say that they're not right, right? Because mm -hmm. what would be lost if this kipu yeah. didn't exist? And, and, and to be there with the ritual specialists as they are giving offerings and prayers and you're sitting on top of this mountain where, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, 4,000 meters high. It's incredible. Um, of course, things can be difficult. <laughs> it's not always easy. Um, I was just thinking the other day about a time I was in a village called Vikas. Mm -hmm. And Vikas in the mountains, mm -hmm. the people had resettled there from a, a, what was called an ice village mm -hmm. about 100 years before. Mm -hmm. So in Peru, you know, Lima, the city, is very hot. And in the colonial period, and up until the 20th century, they would have what were called the ice routes, where people would chop ice from the glaciers and then take them down the mountain, mm -hmm. packed in straw, it would take about a, you know, two days to get down, and then the people in Lima could have ice in their drinks, <laughs> or they could have ice for them. <laughs> <laughs> and so this, the ice village was called Kilkamachai, and so it was very, very high up. Mm -hmm. It had been abandoned, in the um, around the, the late 19th century and so it was all left in situ so I wanted to see it mm -hmm. and I asked people well can I go up there is it easy and they said well it'll take two days to walk up there I said but but if you've got a horse you can do it they said do you know how to ride a horse I'm like yeah sure right <laughs> I didn't say it had been 40 years since I had ridden a horse and I never really knew how to ride a horse very well so we get up I have a guide and we're going and it, it's it's pretty tough going up there right and mm. it's a horse ride of about three and a half hours but I, I managed it and and you know <laughs> I took pictures again feeling like oh my gosh I'm in this place where mm. hardly anybody ever gets to be this is incredible there are beautiful colonial paintings still in the church mm. just sitting there um, it was impressive and then the ride down oh my <laughs> gosh I found out later that people in the village were shocked because they said, oh, we didn't think that route could be done by horse. <laughs> I mean, so you're just trusting in the horse, right? Yeah. I mean, you're like, he, his, his um, hooves are sliding down sheer rocks. And oh you're like, gosh. oh, yeah, right. This will be okay. <laughs> Everything is okay. I'm fine. Exactly. Nothing's going to go wrong. And so finally, after like three and a half hours, we make it back to the village. And I'm like, okay, I did that. <laughs> and, and everybody's watching, right, uh -huh. in the square. And I'm like, well, I can do it now. And I move to, th you know, dismount beautifully off the horse. My legs are completely numb and I land, boom, right on the oh, bottom. No. 
and everybody starts laughing. Well, I, I still think it's pretty hardcore that you did the trip up there and back. So I bet your legs were like chilly. Oh, completely. Completely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's an amazing story. That is pretty hardcore though. Yeah. What what an adventure. It was fun. And the guy who, who went with me, turns out, you know, he's in his 20s, turns out that he's like the champion horse rider of the whole region. <laughs> well, I think you proved your medal. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, So it sounds like the Kipus have this serious spiritual significance often. Right, um, like with this one with the time, and um, and I know that some of your research has also been on kind of Christianity in these regions and how that has interacted with, clashed with, been incorporated into um, kind of the spirituality and practices of of that world. So tell us, what would we not know? What oh do you think goodness. is beautiful or interesting or distressing? Yeah, well, kipus, I mean, it's funny because when um, Western scientists have studied kipus, they liken them to mop heads <laughs> and baseball scorecards and ledger oh books. And, and after being in communities where people have these objects, mm. which they consider sacred, which they consider living and sentient, I always kind of like die a little inside when I hear those, those analogies. Yeah. Um, you know, they're sacred. The kipus are sacred in different ways. So in this one village like Rapaz, as I said, they're seen as, as the physical embodiment of time and in that way a link to the ancestors. And the tactile nature of kipus is very important. So for example, in that village Rapaz, they, the kipus literally are the a contact with the ancestors in terms, now this may seem kind of gross to Western listeners, but in terms of like the, the mold and the, and, yeah. the, and the mildew and the dust huh. that, that you breathe in when you stand next to them. Hmm. And, and there's literally this intermingling. And again, this is something that makes us uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it's a different way of thinking about our relationship to our ancestors and to the material world. Yeah, it's also interesting because it's, very, it seems very much like a view of the world which doesn't see a separation between like spiritual things or things that are more foundational and you know the physical world. Because sometimes I think we think we can accidentally begin to think of that, right? That there's kind of the spiritual things and then there's the physical world that we touch and breathe and sweat and kiss in. But it sounds like there's this kind of view of the world that's more porous and that sees our contact with something as physical as a kibu as being a literal contact with with the ancestors or, or with the spiritual realm. I think yeah. that's a nice way to think about it. Um, you know, we just take our world so much for granted yeah. that then when we talk about something like the Andes and for people whom I know there, they will you know, be very matter-of-fact about the role of the ancestors in <laughs> maintaining the water canals and the water <laughs> running through the universe and kind of fertility. And it's, it's not even considered spiritual. It's just, just the way what it, it is. is. It's just common sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you look at our own world where we're kind of destroying the natural world, why do we think that we've got it more clear with our very kind of disembodied, you know, scientific look at it? You know what I mean? We have this kind of assertion or this certainty in the West that we've figured out nature by having reduced it to science. But then as we do that, we're also kind of destroying the natural world. Yeah. So yeah. it's funny that we have that. Yeah, no, that's true. And another way in the Andes, I think, is, is just the idea of death is very different. Hmm. And it's an idea of death that's very compatible to tradi- 
traditional Christian notions, mm -hmm. which is that the dead still exist, mm -hmm. the dead have an interest in our lives, we can mm -hmm. pray to the saints, mm -hmm. and they will, you know, if that's what, you know, because that's something that was part of the Christian um, heritage for a long time. Um, and so people, for example, might often ascribe an illness to the fact that um, somebody dug a field too close to their ancestor's grave. Mm -hmm. And so that's and so the solution then is you know to preserve the grave because the field is less important. <laughs> so yeah, it's a very different viewpoint. Wow, that's really interesting. Okay, so something else I want to ask you about is um, this kind of relationship between weaving and string and um, and that also being connected to to language and storytelling. Tell us a bit about yeah. Anything you have to share about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when I started this, I mean, I grew up in a, in a household where, like, my mom, my grandmother, they were all doing, like, a lot of knitting and sewing mm -hmm. and darning, and, like, it went over my head. <laughs> it was so lost on me. But working in the Andes has brought me back to thinking about textiles, to thinking about cloth and how absolutely, forgive the pun, interwoven it is into our lives. Yeah. You know... We couldn't exist without string. When I was in undergraduate in, in college, mm. when we had these intro anthropology classes, we learned, oh, well, you know, the first tools that humans made were men chipping, you know, cutting devices and mm. these stone tools. Well, now it looks like actually probably the, the first tool that humans ever made was mm. string. Now, you may think, well, come on, string, really? Mm -hmm. It's not that hard, but it's actually like technology. So like this example of very old string, you twist the fibers mm -hmm. one way, because you know fibers can twist either to the right or to mm -hmm. the left, and then when you ply it, when you mm -hmm. take multiple fibers and, and put it together, you do it in the opposite direction to make it much stronger. So this actually is a tool. And by looking at kibus and thinking about kibus, it's led me to realize how profoundly fabric affects every aspect of our life. Hmm. And it's led me to think a lot about fiber artists like mm. Sheila Hicks and Annie mm. Albers and people working on, on this today, making us think about fiber in a whole new way. Hmm. That's really beautiful. And um, I feel like that's another aspect of kind of a thread we might pull from this podcast, <laughs> which is those things that are present in our world, but that we we kind of have a habit of inattention is what Owen Barfield talks about. You know, that we, that fabric, thread, you know, we're both wearing clothes, standing on carpet, sitting on all these things that had to be woven, that had to be taken from some material that was made, whether it was from an animal's fur or from some synthetic thing. It surrounds us and, and literally encloses our lives, but we're just kind of unaware of it. And, um, and I think that's, that seems like something that keeps on coming to me in this conversation is the sense of just kind of our unawareness and how much depth there is that comes from an awareness of things like that. You know? Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, people will ask over and over, they'll say, well, like, like, come on, what, what was wrong with Incas? Why didn't they develop an alphabet or <laughs> a system of glyphs? Why did they, you know, write with fabric, with cords? Yeah. And yet when you start to think about how 
even things like string games mm -hmm. are used, you know, playing Cat's Cradle or something. This is something that's done all around the world yeah. by so many different cultures. It's like, why on earth wouldn't you do yeah. a uh, communication system through string? Yeah. So I have another question of curiosity. Um, who was doing the weaving and, and the making of these, of the kipus? Because in my mind, I think of, I often think of weaving and fabric and all those things as... Uh, a task women often do, but I don't know if that's true with kipus. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a question that's often debated. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, it's always been a bit of a paradox mm -hmm. because weaving is a very gendered task traditionally mm -hmm. in the Andes. It's something that women do. And in mm -hmm. the Inca Empire, women were the weavers. There were actually like special women set aside just to weave full time, to mm -hmm. weave luxury cloths. And so, but all of our historical documents, almost all of them, talk about the men being the kipu experts. So that seems kind of puzzling. <laughs> now, I don't know. My, uh, I have a very good friend, Jeffrey Splitstozer, who works with me on kipus. And we're, because of course people assume that the kipu is an outgrowth of weaving. Hmm. We are wondering if maybe that is an incorrect idea. Hmm. And kipos are actually an outgrowth of making slings. Hmm. Now, the slings in the Andes are the most complicated slings anywhere, ever. <laughs> and the, the braiding involved mm -hmm. um, is amazing. And it's all made by men. This mm. is very much a man's task. In mm -hmm. fact, I have a, a very good friend who's deceased now, Elaine Zorn, who um, was trying to learn how to make slings in the Andes um, in the 1980s and 1990s. Mm -hmm. And the men would just shake their heads and say, I'm sorry, dear, you know, women can't really learn how to do this. It's way too complicated. <laughs> too much dexterity. And of course, she learned and, and she excelled at it. So I think, I mean, personally, I, I think that maybe um, Keep was developed out of sling technology, mm -hmm. which might explain why they were apparently more of a man's task, although clearly women could read them. And when we look at the use of kipus in modern villages, women were just as able to read the kipus as well as the men. In fact, in this one community where kipus were used until the 1950s, um, this village has a special sacred book, they call it the Entablo, which they believe is like um, the Bible. Mm -hmm. and. Um, my postdoc and I are working on doing, they've given us permission to do an edition of this. Mm -hmm. It's actually falling apart. It's about mm -hmm. 60 pages long. And they, um, a gentleman in the village told me, well, you know, everything that anyone would ever need to know is in this book. So, wow. Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> well, that is exciting. <laughs> and, and in that book, they say that the person who reads these strings in mm -hmm. a public ceremony has to be what we might call the shaman, the yachak, which means mm -hmm. the person who knows, the person mm -hmm. who has knowledge of kind of um, the, the spiritual beings that surround mm -hmm. the village and that determine the welfare of everyone in the village. Wow. So there is that spiritual tie there. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody else in the village has to be able to understand them because this is public. Mm -hmm. okay? and, and these are counting for um, whether people are performing the duties that they need to do in the ceremonies, and if they're not, they're going to be punished. So, mm. but but yeah, it's, it's the yachak who is mm. the official reader of them. And most recently in this village, the yachak was a woman. Mm. Very interesting. Um, I feel uh, something else that's striking me as you're telling me all this is 
and you know, to a hammer everything looks like a nail. So right now I have in my brain, how we look at the world doesn't determine, like there's lots in the world to see that we can't see simply because we don't have the language or the eyes or the attention to see it. And I think part of what helps us to see things in the world is actually the language that we use and the way we describe things. And that's what I think is so interesting about the overlap with kipus is this sense of um, them not representing or symbolizing, but actually being something in the yeah. world, spiritual. But then that's also tied in with language. And I have a, um, a question I want to ask as we kind of wind towards the end, which is less to do with research, but I still feel like you'll have an answer to it. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, if there is this way of attending to the world that can be different than we you know, that we normally have. And you're talking about the woman sitting on the side of the hill, reading yeah. her Bible and attending to the cows. Um, our world is so, we do have this habit of inattention. It's hard to perceive things. What do you think are ways we can become more aware of the potency and beauty of the world and the spiritual things in the world? That's a good question. And it's an important question because, you know, people are struggling. I mean, it's not like everybody's kind of like, ha ha. I'm a Westerner. It's great not to be aware of the spiritual realities. I'm doing fine. It's not that, but I think that this is a hard thing to talk about because obviously we need money, we need access to health care, we need things, but I find that in the West, our concern about, our over-concern for money blinds us Mm. to what's important. And, And I say this from from you know teaching generations of students for decades and you know showing them like films from Latin America where this very humble individual who obviously doesn't have a lot he might be an elderly man mm. is somebody who has this incredible knowledge mm. and of course a lot of students get it but a lot of them are like why are we looking at this poor person i think that you know and this is like a fundamental core christian value yeah to, to see the poor not as other but as ourselves. And, and it's sad when we let the values that we learn of, of like what's wealthy, mm-hmm. what's important, what's popular, it, when we let that obscure our vision. Hmm. It's just sad. Yeah, it is. I, I don't think Jesus was kidding when he said, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? And I think, you know, you were saying that it's hard to get people in other cultures to tell you what they don't know they know. Mm -hmm. But I think that can be true of us too. I think sometimes we cannot know that the thing we have imbibed at a deep level is I need to provide for myself and have enough and have things and be secure. But that that can never provide happiness in in a deep way. And I think that, and I think in some ways, if you don't have that deep spiritual satisfaction and, and, awareness of things you won't even enjoy the things that you do have and yeah. and that's kind of the you know the catch-22 of our world as we can work and work and work to have more and more and more or even just to have stability but not be able to have the spiritual life that enables us even to enjoy the things that we do have yeah it's so it, it, it's hard to i mean we're in such an age of anxiety yeah and the anxiety is real you don't just like wish no. it away or tell people come on you know it, yeah but, and and so you know let's look to other cultures and other societies to see if they organize their world in ways where this isn't like an ever-present problem yeah i think that's that is a very 
poignant thing to think about. This has been so lovely to have this conversation with you, Sabina. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for the honor of being here. I'm so excited. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave a rating and review on iTunes and make sure to share it with a friend on social media.